Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2021. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. And for all of you history buffs and would-be history buffs, today's podcast will be something really special. I'm going to give you a little background here. Earlier this year, I read an article in the Maritime Reporter and Engineering News entitled, SS United States, the Maritime Thoroughbred. And, you know, for those of you who have listened to this podcast before, you may know that I started my career with United States Lines, the container liner. But its history, including the great passenger ship, the SS United States, is very dear to my heart. So I sought out Susan Gibbs, the president and co-founder of the SS United States Conservancy. And to my great delight, she graciously agreed to be our guest today. Susan is also the granddaughter of William Francis Gibbs, the SS United States designer. Just to uh, let you know about Susan, she's given presentations throughout the country on the SS United States and has appeared in multi, multiple media outlets, including the NBC Nightly News, National Public Radio, CNN, CBS Sunday Morning, Agence France Press, Channel N24 Germany, and Al Jazeera America, just to name a few. But first, we are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurant, entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-V-Y, commercial.com. And I'm going to post that on our website. And I want to thank Levy Commercial Real Estate for sponsoring this episode. So without further ado, here is Susan Gibbs. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is so great. And um, before we get into some of the great stories about the history of the vessel, tell us something about the Conservancy, how it came about. And we'd you know, love to know something about your background as well. Sure. The SS United States Conservancy is a national nonprofit organization that is dedicated to saving America's flagship, the SS United States. And we've been up and running for over a decade now. 
And uh, we are very proud and proud of the fact that the ship is still safely afloat in Philadelphia, which is in fact a, an improbable achievement. And indeed the SS United States is the, is the only great American liner still with us. And so yeah. that's been our, our passion, the organization's passion for, for over a decade and certainly, certainly my personal passion as well. Absolutely. Can, and Pete, can people see the vessel from the road in Philadelphia? It looked like uh, maybe you can kind of see it in the distance for now. Absolutely. You can see it just driving down I-95 or crossing the Walt Whitman Bridge. And I mean, people have told us that they've almost veered off the road because it's just so startling to see this historic ocean liner just nestled among warehouses and the uh, uh, an ikea and lowe's and, and uh, <laughs> no she she's right there there's a perfect view of her from the ikea cafeteria <laughs> oh that's so cool and um i'm gonna post uh your website for the conservancy uh when we post this episode and i recommend to people to watch the documentary it is just fascinating it's and i think four or five parts and it's uh when did they make the documentary when when was that yeah there, there are two versions of the film the original documentary uh lady in waiting was aired uh, around the country on public uh television stations back in in i believe it was 2008 and it's an extraordinary film that was uh, uh, produced by one of our board members mark perry and directed by robert radler and it's a a beautiful tribute to the ship and and it really makes the case that we must save her and then in addition we have a second film called ss united states made in america that is indeed available on our website as you noted that is uh, divided up into several chapters and and uh, yeah they've they've been fabulous uh, tools to to really yeah. share the story with with people who can't see her in philadelphia I agree. I agree. So I recommend that and I will post a link to that. So let's talk about your grandfather, because this wasn't just a one and done designing this vessel. It goes back to World War II. Now, you'll have to correct the facts here, but I understand he's designed, he designed like 60% of the nation's wartime fleet and over 6,000 ships during the course of his career. Is that That's right? exactly right. Exactly right. And uh, his story is one of, of, a, of, of, he had a passion from the earliest age as a little boy, his family uh, summered in Spring Lake, New Jersey with this vista of the ocean. And he saw all of the, the ships coming and going into New York Harbor and just developed an obsession with them. And in fact, attended a ship launch in Philadelphia when he was a boy and later on said in speeches, like it was from that moment forward that I dedicated my life to ships and I have never regretted it. And so, so he was obsessed with ships from a very young age. He then went on to, to high school, to college, and he was one of a number of famous Harvard dropouts. He was so focused on, on his ship designs that he literally would you know, hold himself up in his dorm room by himself and redesign British battleships instead of attending <laughs> his classes. 
So he didn't do very well, although ultimately he received an honorary degree, degree from Harvard. So it, oh. it, all, it all worked out in the end, but yeah. Uh, and, then, uh, and then after uh, graduation from Harvard, his, his father was not impressed with this ship obsessed son, encouraged him to go to law school and do something practical. So he did go to law school. He practiced law, he graduated, he practiced very briefly, and it was, he hated it with a passion. And so then he moved back home. I mean, I think of this, I'm, I'm a mother now, and I just think if my children had <laughs> done this, I mean, it should, uh, so he moved back home, and then basically with his little brother, my uncle, uh, great uncle Freddie, uh, just announced they were going to start designing ships. I mean, it was just this quixotic uh, uh undertaking at that time but yeah. and again I won't uh, go on and on about it but the bottom line is that early on in his career and this is after World War One you mentioned World War Two after mm -hmm. World War actually before World War One he developed this this dream of designing the fastest most powerful ship for the United States he was very irritated that European liners yeah. were just excelling in every regard. And he thought, gosh, we, could, we should be able to do this in our nation. What, what is our problem? We can do this. Let's, yeah. let's go. And so he developed, yeah, developed a design uh, early on, as I said, even before World War I. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, he stuck with it through World War I, World War II. You mentioned his, his firm's major role in the, in the mobilization effort in World War II. Yeah. Ultimately, 6,000 vessels designed according to Gibbs and Cox plans. Wow. And then finally, 1952, the SS United States embarked on her maiden voyage. So it really was you know, literally a 40-year obsession that had many obstacles uh, including two world wars, but eye on the prize. And, and uh, that's, 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 that's his story. That's so, that's so amazing. Um, did you, um, were you around him much growing up? I mean, did you know he was this great naval architect or was he just granddad and, you know. To be honest, when I was a, a child, I really didn't focus on him. I, I remember visiting, well, first of all, he died when I was young. And so I only met him literally once when I was, when I was young. So I have this sort of vague memory of that. Yeah. His presence in my childhood was uh, in the form of a bronze bust that was, that stood in my grandmother's, well, formerly grandparents' home in Rockport, Massachusetts. And so my grandfather's bronze bust was displayed in a corner. Yeah. And I do remember being intrigued with this bust and also a little anxious about it. I like to climb up and down the bookshelf on the other side of the room. And I had a sense that my grandfather was staring at me, misbehaving, and not, <laughs> not approving of it. So it wasn't until opening those boxes in, of my father's and seeing my grandfather on the cover of Time magazine oh and the SS gosh. United States on the cover of Newsweek, and and just like gosh, what this is this is a, this is something, and and so it was only after that that I, I like all of us went online yeah. and, and uh, wondering where his ship was she still afloat, 
where was um, she? What happened to her? And so that really what, was- What were you doing? Life. What were you doing at the time? What was your career up in, and you still have a career, but what was your career before you took on the concern? Sure, sure. no, it, it's, I've, I've worked for private foundations on international women's rights issues. So yes. at the time I was working for a, a foundation in, in Washington and I mean, I, I like to think of there's a synergy in that the SS United States is a strong, powerful female. <laughs> she is. All ships are she's. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so it sounds like when you were growing up, it wasn't like the family just all, all the time was talking about his accomplishments no, or anything. No, honestly, it, it wasn't. I mean, certainly my father, so my grandfather's son, my dad, loved the sea and loved boats, but he actually uh, was fond of tugboats. And so growing up in Maine, we would tool around on Casco Bay on my father's tugboat, initially an old lobster boat, then a tugboat. And my father was, was quite a character as well, L liked to, to paint his tugboats in exotic colors. And so purple, lime green. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so he, he, in his words, he thought he, th he thought boats should be happy. And so he, he, uh, uh, yeah, he, so he loved the sea and boats, but, um, oh, but wow. yeah, so my, I would say my grandfather was, was a presence, but, but, but it, it certainly was, uh, it, it wasn't until I, 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 I got older that I, I fully appreciated just what an accomplishment he Right. And it was, and I want to talk about the ship's history and, and, and uh, you know, some of the special characteristics and design characteristics that made it the flagship of the United States, which is what it is. Uh, so, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about the history of the ship itself, how it came about. I understand that the Navy was involved in absolutely absolutely so the the ss united states was a a public private partnership if you will between united states lines and the u.s government and particularly the navy so the ship was a is a convertible troop ship and so uh, received a heavy government subsidy and had a number of top secret security features uh, because it was really a national security asset and uh, you know, everything from the dual engine rooms to the ultra thick hull, torpedo proof hull, if you will. Oh, wow. To, to a, a unique configuration of four and five bladed propellers for maximum speed, ultra lightweight, the use of aluminum. It, more aluminum was used in the SS United States than any other structure on land or sea until the World Trade Center towers went up uh, later. And so from, uh, yeah, it just an extraordinary uh, accomplishment and smashed the transatlantic speed record on her maiden voyage using only two thirds of her power. And so was, was wow. designed to be able to transport a full division of troops 10,000 miles without refueling. Wow. But, but then of course was also a luxury liner carrying right heads of state and stars of stage and screen. And so just had this fascinating dual identity. Absolutely. Now I understand that maybe the most 
one of its most important mission isn't the right word, but part of the design was making it fireproof, making it, uh, you know, fire resistant. And that went, if you can talk about that, that went throughout every part of the interior design and the exterior design of the vessel. Absolutely. So my grandfather was obsessed with fire prevention. And he, and this, as you say, he demanded that all fireproof, only fireproof materials were used uh, inside and outside the vessel. For example, he had a major altercation with Theodore Steinway because he wanted Steinway pianos to be specially commissioned in <laughs> aluminum for the ship. Imagine. And Steinway was like, there's no way that would affect the tonal quality of these instruments. <laughs> and it got pretty, pretty uh, heated. It was only after Steinway and my grandfather agreed to a test in which one of the Steinway, the, one of the mahogany Steinways was covered in gasoline and ignited. And the point being that it would, the flames soon died down. It did not erupt into this conflagration. And so only after this, this test were mahogany Steinways permitted aboard the vessel. And you read stories of the interior design team an all female team actually, yeah. which, is, which is interesting. And the challenges that they had to undergo to find all you know, non-flammable fabrics, right. the artists commissioned to, to, for, to produce works of art for the public rooms on the ship could only use non-flammable materials. So they worked in sand and foam glass and all of these oh alternative um, materials because of this mania for fire prevention. In addition, asbestos particle board was used. And this was back in the days when asbestos was seen as this right. miraculous project. Right. And so, uh, which, which was subsequently removed by a, a previous owner of the ship, I should yeah. emphasize, it's no longer on, the, on, on board, but yeah. but yeah, so that was, you're right, that was a, a hallmark of the ship. I imagine there was some, you've explained, there's some, some innovation came out of this mission to uh, keep this vessel as safe as possible. Now, I happen to love mid-century modern design, so I hope people will take the time to take a look at the photographs and the, and the film because, I mean, it's just glorious design. The, for example, the uh, first-class ballroom, talk about luxury. I, I love that photograph, and, you know, I can just see the men and women in their tails and long dresses, you know, having cocktails or whatever. It's, it's pretty cool. Oh, it's very cool. And you're right. It's an absolute exemplar of mid-century modern art and design. And so the, the furniture, the fixtures, and the conservancy has been collecting items for our future museum. And yes, mid-century modern uh, is it, 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 it's just uh, it's it's ex extraordinary examples of of, yeah. that, of of that expression, and and it it just fit what the vessel was about. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, so um, let's talk about what was the blue ribbon. You've you've alluded to it, but let's explain to people who it was who was competing. For the blue ribbon, it's spelled R-I-B-A-N-D, which mm -hmm. I, 
I didn't understand that spelling, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, a historic artifact. But yes, this was back when ocean liners were expressions of national identity, national pride. And so the blue ribbon was given to the fastest ocean liner to cross the Atlantic. So the SS United States rested the blue ribbon on her maiden voyage from the Queen Mary, from Ooh. British Queen Mary. And so you can imagine how proud my grandfather was <laughs> that this, this prized possession was now in American hands. So when they came back after their triumphal maiden crossing, there was a ticker tape parade in Broadway in New York and all sorts of fireboats and commotion as the as the champion returned to New York after this record-breaking crossing. So it was a really exciting moment. Now, where did she, uh, on her maiden voyage, where, what ports did she call in Europe? And, and did she just call, uh, call on New York when she came back? What were the yes. ports? Yes, so she, the, her typical tour or typical crossing would be Le Havre in France and then mm -hmm. Southampton in England. Okay. And there were some voyages that included Bremerhaven in Germany mm -hmm. and Pobe, Ireland. And then oh. in her later career, she took, she went on some Caribbean cruises and even an uh, you know, I, I, I think they called around it around the world, but it wasn't really, but it, but places like Dakar, Senegal, and the Canary Islands, and these exotic itineraries, wow. occasionally, but primarily she was a transatlantic liner. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, okay, and how, I mean, were the, were the British um, respectful of our win? Were they just, you know, really ticked off? How did that go? I'm just curious. <laughs> No, apparently, apparently the reception in Southampton on her maiden crossing, so she had reached France and then headed over to Southampton. Apparently, it was an extraordinary uh, display of excitement and crowds packing to see her, and Aww. and it was it was very moving actually, um, and uh, and yeah. So I think that there was there was respect. <laughs> Oh, that, that's lovely. That's lovely. Um, yeah, I think that's just so cool. So maybe we can just talk for a minute about some of her famous passengers. I was excited to see that Burt Lancaster and Gary Cooper were some of her passengers. Uh, do, you, do you have any others that you can tell us about? Some celebrities and presidents? And yeah, there are so many. I, I could go on and on, but, but yep. four U.S. presidents, including a young Bill Clinton en route to his Rhodes Scholarship as a, as a young man. And uh, uh, artists and literary figures, and of course, foreign, uh, foreign dignitaries, and yeah. uh, whether it's Marilyn Monroe, Coco Chanel, uh, just almost, uh, well, and one of my favorites, uh, Salvador Dali with his pet ocelot. <laughs> of course, I mean, of course, he would have a pet ocelot, you know, oh, that's amazing. Um, wow. And so about how many passengers did it normally carry on the... It, it varied, uh, it could accommodate almost 2,000, but it didn't always have... In packed uh, passenger lists. And of course, in her waning years, 
the the passenger counts were lower because of course ultimately she was withdrawn from service due to the fact that jet aircraft yeah. were transporting more and more people uh, across the Atlantic, partly right. because we're all such worka <laughs> workaholics. People right. uh, wanted to maximize their their vacation, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, yeah. as opposed to to being unable to take that much time at sea. Yeah. So, um, no, understand there are all sorts of factors, fuel costs, everything, you know, mm -hmm. that comes into it. But um, she's just such an amazing vessel so what happened i mean obviously that's basically what happened is uh air travel you know took over as the major form of transportation but so what happened to the united states what what happened after that when did she yeah so right it was air travel and her because of her power plant uh, enabling such extraordinary speed she was also quite a gas guzzler and so her fuel costs were another factor in in her uh her demise ultimately yeah but but yeah so she was withdrawn from service in 1969 and really it's been the story of a more than a cat with nine lives <laughs> more lives than that and that a succession of owners beginning with the u.s government because again, she was a, a national security asset as we've discussed. And so there she was, it was not permitted for her to be sold privately initially because of security concerns. Was she and ever used in the Korean War or the Vietnam War? She was not, she was not. Uh, she, there was a moment in the Korean conflict in which they were eyeing, this was when she was still under construction actually, and they were eyeing, uh, deploying her to the conflict, but it did not come to pass. And so, no, she never, she was a battle, she had battleship bones, but she was, she never uh, was summoned into wartime service. Okay. And, uh, and so from 1969 until the Conservancy acquired the vessel, uh, a series of owners attempted to, uh, they had different plans. One previous owner envisaged her as a floating condominium complex. Again, there were just several different scenarios and, and dreams for the ship to return in some form. Mm -hmm. And for various reasons, none of them came to pass. Yeah. And so the, the, before the Conservancy acquired the vessel, the ship had been purchased by Norwegian Cruise Line with hopes of bringing the ship to its US flagged fleet at the time. They were, they were hoping to, to launch a line to, that would service the Hawaiian route, because as you know, with the Jones Act, right. the, the, the ships- uh, it, it, it has to be American flag mm -hmm. in order to call American ports. I mean, for yeah, certain- it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Otherwise, otherwise, a, a, a foreign port needs to be a part of the itinerary. And so a lot of these, these efforts were developing somewhat convoluted itineraries to accommodate that mm -hmm. in any event. So Nor Norwegian Cruise Line uh, uh, acquired the ship in hopes of adding, refurbishing the vessel and adding her to their, their, their American fleet. But 
that plan kind of crashed on the shoals of the global economic crisis wow. in the in the late uh, 2000s or 2008 2009 and so right. uh, and so uh, Ultimately, the ship was listed for sale and was in imminent danger of being scrapped. And so the SS United States Conservancy went into SOS mode and, and uh, issued national media appeals and reached out to potential supporters and, and, and really uh, just we were desperately trying to prevent the SS United States from being destroyed. And that would have been such a tragedy. It tragedy. really would have been it, a crime against history as exactly. Walter Cronkite once said, yes. he was our former advisory council chair. What Absolutely. year did the, excuse, excuse me for her, but what year did the, was the conservancy formed? We were formed formally in, in 2009, but but years before that, we existed in a different form, essentially part of an earlier preservation organization called the SS United States Preservation Society, which actually has roots back to 1992. Wow. And so there have been people who have cared deeply about this ship for decades now. And so the Conservancy just stands on the shoulders, if you will, of, of so many people from all around, the, not only all around the country, but all around the world who, who love this ship and, and were determined not to, to were determined to, to try to do everything they could to, to save her. So, so yeah, so in, in, in 2010, the, a major philanthropist uh, who's no longer with us, but Jerry Lenfest uh, uh, responded to our appeal and essentially enabled us to provided a leadership gift that enabled us to purchase the SS United States wow. and save her from imminent destruction. And uh, yeah, so we, we, uh, we were so fortunate and, and Jerry Lenfest was a, a fantastic partner, generous, patriotic American and, and enabled, basically saved the ship from, from yeah. destruction. And amazing. Uh, so did he have a family story related to the vessel? Was there some personal connection to it? There was a personal connection in that his father, we think, designed some of the watertight doors that were used hmm. on the vessel. And he he was a uh, in the Navy himself and and loved ships and in the water. And so, but yes, he had a, a, a special connection through his father. Oh, that's wonderful. What are we trying to accomplish and, and what can people do to help? I mean, certainly the, the first invitation is to visit our website and, and join us. We, we welcome people to support the SS United States Conservancy. We're a nonprofit organization. We have various membership tiers. And our website, of course, gives information not only about our, our membership opportunities, but historical information about the vessel. We have a number of programs pre-COVID. We had more in-person events, yeah. but we are doing like like everyone doing what we can digitally. And so we just an, mounted a digital exhibition last month that is also oh. available on our website, which is which features vintage advertising of the SS United States, both both ads 
for the ship and, and sort of what, what messages, what symbols, what, how was the ship sold to potential uh, uh, travelers, mm -hmm. as well as the SS United States as a stage itself. So it was used as a background to sell any number of products, whether it was IBM or uh, you know, certain forms of coffee and cigarettes. And, and, and so oh. it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating exhibition that was put together by our, our curator, Sydney Sheehan, who did a remarkable job. And so that would, I, another invitation to your, to your listeners yeah. to check that out online. Definitely. And in terms of our, 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 our vision, we are, are working to, to convert the ship, to revitalize the ship as a permanent uh, uh, mixed use museum and development complex. So some of your listeners may be familiar with the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California. Oh, where, sure. And which oh, sure. I have to point out is the ship that the SS United States beat for the, the this British Absolutely. liner that the SS United States <laughs> beat is all nicely preserved in Long Beach, California, where our American flagship is, is currently languishing. So we need to rectify that. Absolutely. But but we're in a currently in a an agreement with a commercial real estate development firm based in New York, RXR Realty that is continuing feasibility studies as to how the ship could be activated commercially and accommodate a variety of, of, of uses, whether that's retail, uh, hospitality, yeah. um, you know, there are a number, because literally 500,000 square feet of usable space aboard this vessel. So it's, it's, it's a, an extraordinarily exciting and iconic real estate Absolutely. development opportunity. Absolutely. And so, so that is ongoing. And then the conservancy is in, in conjunction with this, this mixed use development, the conservancy is planning a remarkable museum and innovation center on, on board the vessel oh, uh, where wow. our, our, our collections will be housed as well. So of course the story of the SS United States will be, will be yeah. explored, but also within the context of broader themes such as mid-century modern art and design, post-war American history and maritime history. Wonderful. And so it's 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 been it's incredibly exciting to be planning that. And and again, <laughs> so this is part of of, uh, of of our mission going forward. And we right. and of course if any of your listeners have personal ties to the ship, we wow. are collecting oral histories and oh cool. And we um uh, because yeah. that's that's really what what makes this ship come alive is 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 the the personal stories that this vessel holds are just so remarkable so so Absolutely. wide ranging in some cases so poignant and moving in some cases so so triumphal and and uh, you know just a number of of stories of of immigrants taking the SS United States to this new land to their to to the new home and so so yes, there are any number of ways that that your listeners could could get involved, and we would just love to hear from from Absolutely. any of them. Absolutely. Well, um, I ha highly recommend that people visit ssusc.org for more information. I'm going to post this with the episode. Susan, this was an amazing discussion today. I'm just so grateful to you for joining us. Really, thank you so much. Um, I 
you know, like I said, I love this history. I will be so happy to see the progress. I really think that this economy is coming back full force. So I'm very optimistic about what can happen here. And to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode, you know, as well as discussions about exporting and international trade. So please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. You can ask questions or post comments on the episode page. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. We are creating a community of exporters here. So please reach out and chat. So Susan, thanks again so much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for this opportunity and also for your own interest in the SS United States. It's greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 